Radio. Learning Communities in the Shadow of the Innovative Economy. A talk by Julie Rhymes at the Christopher Dawson Center for Cultural Studies 2017 Colloquium. Just a little bit about my context and, um, and um, what I'm going to talk about. But um, I've essentially been a school teacher all my life, and I had my first um, Gundas and I were at Teachers College together. We went to our 50-year reunion two years ago, and um, <clears throat> I was 18 when they gave me my first teaching appointment, and I'd, through various reasons, I'd ended up finishing school quite young, and so I was 18 when I went to, out to teach. And um, I was trying to reflect on the things that we did learn when we were at Teachers College. Um, I stayed in primary education for about 30 years, then I completed some doctoral studies, and then I worked in the secondary years. I had a lovely job collegiate, and I didn't stray far from that for, I think, 30, 31 years, I think. Um, and then I became a consultant, predominantly in the K-12 area, and I, I work as an adjunct um, associate professor for UTAS. And so that's something of my context. It's a sort of unusual one. But what I am going to talk about is the context that surrounds schools, uh, the world we live in and the schools that prepare people to live in the world. I've taken as my title, Kaesu, Learning Communities in the Shadow of the Innovative Economy. It's just an invitation to explore the schools and how they seek to provide an education for a good future and a good life. While I was considering what we would talk about today, I was really drawn, I don't know why, but I was drawn to the opening lines of the classic Dickens novel, The Tale of Two Cities, which I first read when I was a schoolgirl. And um, the opening phrase seems to me a very apt summation of the context of today's world, where we have such strong evidence of the transformation in epochs, in wealth and inequality and other elements of our world. I think you could probably recite it along with me. The world's one of the classic openers for a novel. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, the age of wisdom, the age of foolishness, the, the epoch of belief, epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had nothing before us. We we're all going direct to heaven. We we're all going direct the other way. We might also add to this by saying that we live in an age of paradox. And Charles Handy referenced this in 1994 in his The Age of Paradox. And writing about the same time, Andy Hargraves, the Canadian educator, took up this theme and described five paradoxes with direct implication for educators. And well, that was 20 years ago, seemed to me to be still relevant. He posited that many parents have given up responsibility for the very things that they want schools to stress. And that business often fails to use the skills that it demands that schools produce. That, ironically, more globalism produces more tribalism. Fourth one, that when there is more diversity and integration, it's accompanied by more emphasis on common standards and specialisation. And Stronger orientation to the future creates greater nostalgia for the past. So it was uh, 21 years ago that he wrote that, and I think that they still apply. All these paradoxes are still enacted 
in schools today, even though the discourse used to describe these in 2017 has changed. I read an amusing aphorism recently. There are two things wrong with our schools. Everything our children don't learn in them and everything they do learn. <laughs> but continuing on with the theme of paradoxes, some of the paradoxes or polar opposites of our time are the magnificent triumphs of technology and science and engineering juxtaposed against rather depressing realities of our world. <coughs> Consider this little example from the first uh, Global Futures 2045 Congress met in uh, Moscow in 2014. Just one example. There were over 50 world-leading scientists from multiple disciplines. They met to develop a strategy for the future development of humankind. One of the main goals of the Congress was to construct a global network of scientists to further research on the development of cybernetic technology with the ultimate goal of transferring a human's individual consciousness to an artificial carrier. Is this, I wonder, the dawn of a new era, the era of neo-humanity? Currently, we have access to a plethora of such wonderful and at times frightening projections of how science has happened, shaping and reshaping our world. And some terrifying doomsday predictions as well. A few weeks ago, I wanted to attend a lecture at the Royal Society here in Hobart, but it clashed with something else, and so I consoled myself by going onto the website and um, to read some of the speaker's writing. Now, it's, the, the speaker was Barry Brook, who is an ARC Australian Laureate Professor and Chair of Environmental Sustainability at the University of Tasmania. So I think his writing is not to be taken lightly. He and another colleague, Bradshaw, contributed a refereed paper to the National Academy of Sciences of the United States in 2014. And the abstract reads, he's a geographer and an environmentalist, the, in, in, the inexorable demographic momentum of the global human population is rapidly eroding life's support systems. There are consequently more frequent calls to address environmental problems by advocating further reductions in human fertility. To examine how quickly this could lead to a smaller human population, we used scenario-based matrix modelling to project the global population to the year 2100. Assuming a continuation of current trends in mortality reduction, even a rapid transition to a worldwide one-child policy leads to a population similar to today's by 2100. Even a catastrophic mass mortality event of 2 billion deaths over a hypothetical five-year window in the mid-21st century would still yield about 8.5 billion people by 2100. In the absence of a catastrophe or large fertility reductions um, to fewer than two children per female worldwide, um, the, the greatest threat to ecosystems indicate that Africa and South Asia will experience the greatest human pressure on future ecosystems. Now, I just wonder what would our world be like 
how will we react or grieve or manage a mass mortality event of two billion deaths? You know, in a, in a time that many of you here will still be alive in the middle of the next century. You know, how, how filled with grief were we when, we, when the, the tsunami, you know, massive loss of life there. Infantismal compared to that. So the same applies for if, if the globe has to have a one-child policy. How will we react or interpret that? So in view of some of these evidences of the best of times and the worst of times, it's small wonder that one of the most popular movements in school, schools is teaching of positivity. I think if we reflect back on the first six months of this year, we can all bring to mind elements of each of these contrasts. Dickens' words again, the epoch of incredulity, the winter of despair, the age of foolishness, and, and at the same time the age of wisdom and light and hope. As the news continues to be louder and meaner and more violent, more confusing, more divisive and more heartbreaking, so much so there's an increasing trend in Australia for parents to delay their viewing of the evening news until after their children have gone to bed for fear of inducing their offsprings into night terrors. I found myself wondering two things. How do these times shape our young people, their thoughts and their values and their future hopes? And secondly, I puzzle over the problem of what is it that education needs to be for us as a basis of living the good life. Thus, I was thinking about the characteristics of our world and our culture and the people in it to see what education should be. Now, there are many words circulating, largely via social media, which seek to define young people. They're described as millennials, Gen Y, Gen X, Gen Z, Gen Me, and a new one I heard the other day was the Fidgetal, P-H-I-G-I-T-A-L. That is a term referencing the first generation to be unwilling or unable to draw a distinction between the physical world and the digital equivalent. So we've all read about their, these students and their characteristics. The most disturbing insight was a recent comprehensive survey that concluded that the biggest fear of millennials is not global terrorism or climate change or some anthropogenic calamity, but in actual fact their real worry was lack of Wi-Fi coverage. <laughs> Typically they are described as confident, self-expressive, liberal, upbeat and receptive to new ideas and ways of living. Unless positively they're seen as materialistic and self-absorbed. Another descriptor I like, perhaps because it rings true to me, is kayasu. It's a new word making inroads into the English language. Small inroads, I have to say. But it's used prolifically. It was a sort of shorthand for, the, for my purposes here. Used prolifically in Singapore, originates in China, and it refers to a fretful egoistic mindset that's petrified of missing out. It is in fact synonymous with the more English-friendly acronym of FOMO, fear of missing out. Wikipedia defines this as a pervasive apprehension that others might be having rewarding experiences from which one is absent. <laughs> this, this social angst is characterized by a desire to stay continually connected with what others are doing. FOMO is also defined as a fear of regret, which may lead to a compulsive concern that one might miss an opportunity for social interaction, a novel experience, profitable investment, or other satisfying events. In other words, 
FOMO perpetuates the fear of having made the wrong decision on how to spend time. As you can imagine how different things could have been if you made another decision. And the fear of missing out links directly into the paradox of choice. Too many choices in life don't make us happy, happier. Um, Barry Schwartz, the psychologist, suggests that choice has not made us freer, but in fact more paralysed. Not happier, but more dissatisfied. I see this very frequently amongst our school leavers who are overwhelmed with choice that's seemingly before them, fearsome of missing out or making the wrong choice. They agonise over what their next step will be. So if these are some of the manifestations of the societal mind frame of young Australians, how can learning communities prepare the workers, the citizens and the leaders of tomorrow? What sort of learning communities are we in this post-truth information age? There's just so many titles for it, as you, can, as you know. Machiavelli says, if we're going to really foresee the future, we really need to look at the past because men will do the same thing, they'll have the same passions, and they'll not by necessity have the same result. So in antiquity, students of a certain class and gender, that is, privileged and male, who wished to make a difference in the world, had to be well-versed in arithmetic, geometry, music and astronomy, the four subjects that made up the quadrivium. There were three other additional requirements. The trivium was the lower division of the seven liberal arts, and comprise grammar, logic and rhetoric. Preparing students to become good citizens and workers seemed much easier then. They needed to master the mechanics of language, the intricacies of thought and analysis, and apply their mastery of rhetoric so that they might appear wise. Wisdom, of course, doesn't stop with the ancients. There have been uh, many attempts to define what it is that schooling should achieve for society. Committees and think tanks abound. I think you will all remember the Finn Review in 88 came out in 91 and their recommendations, their competencies. Then 92, the Eric Meyer produced a list of seven competencies that built on the Finn uh, competencies. Then um, the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry and Business Council had another go at employability skills in 2002. Um, so these lists of competencies and skills and the work behind them showed that debate about what we are now often referring to as 21st century skills began in Australia uh, before the end of the 20th century. There have been similar discussions in other parts of the world as well and there have been significant international efforts to define these skills, the OECD, 2003, key competencies for a successful life and a well-functioning society, for example. I'd like to explore some manifestations of the trivium and the quadrivium of the liberal arts in antiquity, and that is both the Australian curriculum and a set of 21st century skills, which was um, led by a project that with three Australian academics, Patrick Griffin, Barry McGaw, and Esther Kerr, and concluded in 2012. So I'm going to start on that one because it's relatively an easy one to talk about. Um, so the first of these, the, the, the 21st century skills were the project, a five-year project emanated from three major international technology companies, Cisco, Intel, and Microsoft, 
they took the view that if schools were being asked to um, uh, pay attention to what business wanted, then they better define the competencies and, and how they're going to measure them and all that sort of. So an international team reviewed many of the definitions, and they're in their book, um, that had emerged in other countries. And they took up a, um, a view that they wouldn't favour one over others, but they would develop a more general classification into which the various definitions might kind of fit. And these definitions were that people in schools needed to teach children how ways of thinking, creativity, innovation, critical thinking, and so on, ways of working to include communication, collaboration, and teamwork, and then they ought to have tools for working, information literacy and ICT literacy. And the fourth category was living in the world, skills to live in the world, to include citizenship, global and local. But what do these categories do for us as teachers in schools? And I go back and I've been through Maya and I've been through Finn and, and I've tried to lead teachers through all manner of um, innovations and um, uh, efforts that have been before us saying how we're going to fit this into the curriculum, how we're going to actually do this. Do they, do any of these help us to decide what we are to teach and how to teach and do we care enough to actually unpack them and make them useful for practitioners in schools? How do these categories affect us in schools as we seek to help people lead meaningful, ethical and successful lives? I, I suspect rather like the Finn, the Meyer and the 2002 Chamber of Commerce, for those of us at the chalk face, very little. Since the conclusion of the assessment and teaching of 21st Century Skills Project in 2012, some inroads have been made into schools. University of Melbourne had a very large following on a... Um, I didn't write this in, now I'm going to forget what it's called, but a, a free interactive learning, what do they call a MOOC? A MOOC, and um, I participated in the MOOC for a little while, and um, it was certainly getting some traction. But the uh, tertiary institutions and um, schools haven't made any significant changes to the way that um, that they're progressing. I alluded earlier to the Australian curriculum as a very central and defining element of what we do in schools in Australia, and I feel somewhat reticent to go into too much detail. Uh, with due acknowledgement to Dr Donnelly, but it is a discipline-based set of expectations of what all Australian students should be taught regardless of where they live or their background. All students from foundation to year 10 have access to the same content and their achievement can be judged against consistent national achievement standards. But the key question is, is it designed to deliver as Dr Donnelly wrote in his letter to then Education Minister Pine, or is it so far delivering what students need, parents expect and the nation requires of an education system? Or is it, as um, Wiltshire and Donnelly both asserted, a monolithic, inflexible and unwieldy curriculum? I say it sure is. It's rather like the Parsons egg. It's kind of good in parts, my perspective. But does it lead us any closer to how we have to foster motivated and dedicated learners and prepare them to un overcome the unforeseen challenges of tomorrow? 
Um, Andreas Slicer, who is the OECD Education Director, at least in 2012, made a very nice summary comment about what we need to have for education. Education today is more about ways of thinking which involve creative and critical approaches to problem solving and decision making, about ways of working, including communication and collaboration. He sort of summarises what um, Esther Kerr and Patrick um, Griffin and Barry McGaw came to. Um, we need tools that require that we require, such as the capacity to recognise and exploit the potential of new technologies, or indeed to avert their risk. And last but not least, education is about the capacity to live in a multifaceted world as an active and engaged citizen. Having travelled back in time, I'd like to change gear and just speed ahead into the future and present you with some thoughts about a kind of refreshed framework of desirable skills, what that might look like for the millennial generation and for the new information age, like the quadrivium and the trivium, my proposal is seven intersecting realms, and I, pr I propose here systemic thinking, deep expertise, expert project management, complex problem solving, diversification, technical proficiency, and becoming a writing worker. Now, um, Dr. Justin Marquis from the online university proposes and these categories, except the last one, and in so doing, acknowledges sources, American sources, uh, reinventing schools, but he also references the uh, assessment and teaching of 21st century schools as being influencing his thinking. Thus, he follows and extends the argument that I've been making. Um, I'm just going to give you a little touch onto each of those areas, and there's clearly more in the paper that um, if you want to have a broader view of what I've been talking about. So um, systemic thinking was the first one, and there's a long history of that, but um, holistic learning and um, a whole uh, way of looking at things that involves a connected approach. So you can see evidence of the need for systemic thinking when an, uh, an interconnected conglomerate such as Google wants to introduce a new innovation into its business, it must rely on systemic thinking to hypothesise how a singular action can impact on others. It comes as no surprise then that Google um, spent oh, two and a half billion dollars to launch a massive crisis campaign in the wake of um, President Trump's immigration ban just to see and, and employ people to work out what this was going to mean for them. I think this example from February this year illustrates two important things. To ensure that you arrive at the best possible outcome, any decision, no matter how controversial or mundane, should only be taken after evaluating all the available factors. And linear thinking that has traditionally been associated with business acumen and success is on the decline. I have multiple other examples, but they're too long to go into here. But systemic thinking acknowledges that the world is complex. So one challenge of systemic thinking is that future educators, and especially educational leaders, will need to shake off the linear mould of problem solving or strategic planning in dealing with life events. 
a life event is always going to be more than a single episodic experience, but includes the factors associated with an experience. So the second essential competency for the 21st century relates to having deep expertise. Other people have picked this up. Much bombast and heraldry has accompanied the introduction and the release of the new HSC in New South Wales in February this year. According to the chair of the New South Wales Education Standards Authority, the new course in courses in English, mathematics, science and history will be characterised now by greater depth, rigour and mastery of content learning. Um, countries closer to us, such as China and Singapore, are also in the process of revising their curricula in the hope, again, stated hope, of providing their students with a deeper expert understanding of mathematics and science instead of the historical practices such as rote learning, which incidentally has served them very well in the PISA tests. But I'm not advocating for a moment the dumbing down of standards in schools and universities and society. I'm an ardent supporter of deep expertise when this is applied judiciously to a given scenario. Developing deep expertise, though, is not something where the aim is simply to help young Australians do well at school and succeed in securing a place in a tertiary institution. It's the, about the acquisition of a mindset that values rigorous thinking and hard working and preparing oneself for skills which are still emerging. Many commentators everywhere are saying that the primary children, 65% of the millennials, will end up working in jobs that we haven't been invented yet. Uh, one curriculum response has been to focus enormous attention on STEM, STEM skills and coding skills. Well, I have to say the coding response to me is, is a rather late acknowledgement that after 30 years of equipping schools with computers in order to meet the digital revolution, most computers in schools are used as word processors and information retrieval units. So I endorse the skilling in technology and science wholeheartedly, but note that in addition to specialised technical and communicative skills, we must also equip students with cognitive and non-cognitive skills in a range of areas. The best way for young people to do this is to avoid early specialisation whilst in high school and study a broad base of subjects which will, will enable their elastic brains to train itself to become, to respond to different forms of challenges. Deep expertise in any field prepares the template in the brain for becoming expert in other fields as well. As the world gets smaller through globalisation, innovation and economics, it's possible to know how different fields and subjects will intersect. The third 21st century skill that will be required is self-directed learning. It requires young people to not only embrace their own learning but also to become responsible for it. Self-direction in one's learning assumes many forms and countless curriculums actually embrace this in the delivery of curriculum. In Tasmanian schools, um, there's an excellent pre-tertiary subject, student-directed inquiry, whose sole purpose is, as the title might suggest, to teach self-directed learning through an inquiry approach. I taught the subject for many years, 
and I'm currently the chief examiner for the subject. It incorporates all the elements that have been proposed as essential elements for the future. Um, Justin Mark was the man that I referred to earlier from the online universities, proposes that the level of change that is occurring at every strata of society is so dizzying that workers need to be self-reliant in finding creative and innovative ways of working. Working professionals need to be proactive in equipping themselves with the essential set of skills which enable them to carry out their work. They can't rely on uh, professional learning that's dished up to them. Um, it should come as no surprise that the fourth 21st century skill refers to complex problem solving. Again, finding workable and clever solutions to complex problems requires a strong intellectual ability and a certain expertise in what can be achieved. You just can't do problem solving out of no knowledge and no expertise. So such solutions to emerging complex problems will require future workers to delve into diverse areas of expertise, maybe even marketing, ICT, economics, media, uh, as well as the core disciplines. So how can students, how can schools prepare students to forge their way in becoming complex problem solvers. It's not as difficult as it appears. People who will be able to solve complex problems, even those that are not as yet manifest, are those people who have a strong academic performance and a strong analytical skill, as I, skill level, as I alluded to. In my view, these are the students who in schools, assume leadership positions and are able to execute these well through, execute leadership positions well through effective communication. These are the young people who incorporate work into their school routines, including an outside homework and assignment, whether this is paid employment or volunteer work or through internship. In addition, of course, the liberal education tradition is a surefire method to produce innovative thinkers. While it seems odd to reference innovation with what's often thought of as an archaic model, an academic career of last resort, in fact, it is a sound pathway to foster innovative thinking. Liberal arts or liberal education. For our purposes here, I suggest that a liberal education is a broad-based study of many disciplines <coughs> with an emphasis on inquiry, analysis, and critical thinking. Um, liberal education arts cult must cultivate the written and oral communication skills that we saw embedded in the, in the ancients. They must also embed some civic engagement across the curriculum, including a foundation in ethical thinking and a focus on imparting skills and the curiosity <laughs> necessary for lifelong learning. The fifth element concerns diversification. Um, many of us have been able to create our own uh, career pathway and to follow our passions, and it's never too young to start this. So seeking out alternative ways of adding value to what you're learning, taking up a job or an internship, and, and quite different skills that you might learn all have value. Sixth subsect is uh, having technological um, proficiency. I was taken with um, 
Eleanor O'Neill writing for the International Body of Chartered Accountants in 2016. And the LinkedIn had done a global top, global top skills of 2016 report. What are the top skills they want? And um, it showed that demand for the technical skills in the workplace with digital knowledge and understanding making up the entire top 10. Didn't want anything else in the top 10. Employers are reportedly looking more and more to hire experts in data analysis, web design, software, <coughs> and so on. So um, they'll certainly need to be have technological proficiency. So, so far I've, I've really just focused on a range of other 21st century skills that are commonly referenced in one set of publications or another. But my final offering is one that Rosalind Petalin refers to as being a working writer. And Petalin distinguishes between working writers, such as journalists and people who earn their money that way, novelists and uh, technical writers, and the writing worker, whose work, where the work requires a strong ability in their working life. For example, lawyers or scientists or researchers. Such writers may not consider themselves to be a writer by profession, but they, they find that they need to become a good writer by, um, by default. In my experience, it's the skills of a writing worker that will be a distinguishing feature of our evolving world scene. Knowing how words work, how sentences work, paragraphs work, how punctuation and structure and design all work to contribute to meaning are going to be desirable and an increasingly scarce commodity. It's only often when there is do a document-related crisis that the political complexity and sensitivity of different documents becomes exposed and leads to problems of credibility and exposure to risk. Again, alas, it's a declining skill level amongst teachers able to teach good writing skills. And amongst our school teaching force, there's a marked diminution of these school skills. Um, I'm, I'm kind of encouraged that um, somewhat a, re, uh, a somewhat reluctant initiative with the Tasmanian Department of Education called My Education actually, I found belatedly actually kind of summarises much the same thing that I've been proposing except the last one. Um, uh, but it's sort of hidden under the guise, it's going to be called career education. And I have to say I have some reservations about it, but this isn't the forum to go into that be a long discussion. Nevertheless, it, it does employ systemic thinking and approaches. It focuses on problem solving and seeks to meet the, the needs of individual leaders. So all I can say is we'll have to wait and see how it rolls out. Just began this year after two years of getting it ready. I was intrigued quite recently listening to an interview with British writer David Goodhart. In his book, The Road to Somewhere, the Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics, Goodhart describes the characteristics of what he defines as new cult cultural fault lines in Britain between what he categorises as the anywheres, the somewheres and the in-betweeners. Goodhart has divided the world as he sees it into anywheres, that is citizens of the world, and somewheres, people who are inherently more socially conservative and more likely to live close to where they grew up, and without putting too fine a point on it, dissatisfied and with few options for advancement. They are defined as a group belonging to particular places. 
I'll leave aside any debate about whether this is an apt and useful discussion. Nevertheless, if we're to consider the notion of a liberal education and what we mean by using education as the basis for living the good life, then we have these disparate groups to bear in mind. Now, David Goodhart made a keynote address to an intellectual think tank in Europe um, end of last year. I'll just quote very briefly from that. And he says that what lies behind political upheaval in most Western countries is a value divergence. The old divides of class and economic interest have not disappeared, but they're increasingly overlaid by a larger and looser one between the people who see the world from anywhere and the people who see it from somewhere. Anywheres dominate our culture and society. They tend to do well at school. They have been called the exam-passing classes. Then they usually move from home to a residential university, at least in the UK and certainly in Tasmania. If they can get to Melbourne University or Sydney University, they will in their later teens and onto a career in the professions that might take them to London or even abroad for a year or two. Ditto for Tasmania. Such people have portable, achieved identities based on educational and career success, which makes them generally comfortable and confident with new places and people. The somewhere people are by definition more rooted and usually have ascribed identities. We might call them a Scottish farmer, a working class Geordie, Cornish housewife, based on the group belonging and particular places, which is why they often find rapid change more unsettling. One core group of somewheres have been called the left behind, mainly older white working class men with little education. They have lost economically with the decline of well-paid jobs for people without qualifications and culturally too with the disappearance of a distinct working class culture and the marginalisation of their views in the public conversation. However, somewhere's ambivalence about recent social trends spreads far beyond this group and is shared by many in all social classes, especially the least mobile. Despite uh, recent increases in geographic mobility, about 60% of Brits still live about 20 miles from where they lived when they were 14. If we consider our education system in Australia with the state of vocational education and apprenticeship provision and the push towards an expanded and graduate-dominated society where educational success is the gold standard of self-esteem, then it raises questions about the loss of status and respect for those who do not succeed in schools and tertiary education. It's a situation that's particularly telling in relation to Tasmanian educational outcomes. I acknowledge that we live in a world that is defined by knowledge and the need to generate new knowledge, but I do also acknowledge that, again, as we see clearly in Tasmania, not all knowledge and innovation is derived from universities or university graduates. Now, I've spent my working life motivating students to think of themselves as having the skills to work anywhere, and largely they seem to have become anywhere young women. Continually, as teachers, we marvel at the interesting careers and the achievements of our former students. But it does leave a very large majority of people who are not in this group and who will not experience a life that satisfies them, sometimes doesn't even satisfy their basic needs. So what must be done? What can be done? 
this question is exercising a lot of minds in Tasmania and elsewhere. People often ask me the same question, and I'm not entirely sure I have an answer. It is one of the core challenges of our time to create an educational agenda that will help people lead meaningful, ethical and successful lives. I'm paraphrasing Albert Einstein when he says, data isn't information, information isn't knowledge, and knowledge isn't understanding. Understanding is not wisdom. We have a lot of information, we have a good deal of knowledge and understanding, but now we have to apply the wisdom of Solomon to help us define and determine how we can frame an education that fits our purpose. I've proposed a model of seven intersecting realms and, and I've said that this might be a model fit for purpose. I conclude my deliberations with reference to a recent ACEL, Council of Educational Leaders statement, from which I paraphrase. I acknowledge that I'm a member of a profession that extends to me the opportunity and the privilege to make a positive difference in the lives of young people. As, I te as a teacher, I seek to offer a spirit of optimism, resilience and hope as I support young people to develop and act on the values, virtues, beliefs and capabilities that guide them through their lives. I accept the responsibility of being a teacher and acknowledge the deep trust placed in me by society. In writing this paper, I recognise and respect the theory and the knowledge which is gifted to me by those who have come before me. As I draw from it and strive to contribute further to it by these thoughts. Thank you. That was Julie Rhymes with Learning Communities in the Shadow of the Innovative Economy. This presentation was part of the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2017 Colloquium on the theme Liberal Education, Restoring the Notion of Education as the Basics for Living the Good Life, which was hosted in Hobart, Australia. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.